The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Well, if you weren't here last week, just to bring you up to speed, we finished our study in Philippians the week before, and rather than do a book study for a while, we're going to do some topical messages. Um, The next few weeks, we're doing some selected psalms. And we did Psalm 1 last week about the blessed man. And this morning we're looking at the Psalm of the Cross, Psalm 22. And I am so amazed by this Psalm because it gives deep insights into the heart of Jesus in those closing moments of his life here on earth. It's overwhelming when you realize how transparent Jesus was to draw each one of us into what was happening and to experience with him the literal pain and suffering. You and I go through much suffering in this world. The Bible is very clear that in this world we will have tribulation. But often it's so difficult for us to really grasp and hold on to the realities of Christ. Well, this morning this book, this psalm, is going to really put a stamp on the reality of who we are in Christ. All the Psalms, the collection of all 150 Psalms, were written and collected somewhere between the 15th and 3rd century B.C. So at the very least, Psalm 22 was written 300 years before the actual crucifixion of Christ. And so we have a prophetic book here that details what we know is true from the New Testament. So if you're in Psalm 22, let's look at the first eight verses. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groanings? Oh my God, I cry by day and you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads at me. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And then verse 19 says, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. The Lord Jesus Christ is described as the people's shepherds in three key ways. Number one, the good shepherd, found in John 10, 11 and verse 14, John 10, verse 11 and verse 14, who gives his life for the sheep. The great shepherd, described in Hebrews 13, 20, who has risen from the dead and now lives to direct his people into all good works. And then the chief shepherd of 1 Peter 5, 4, who has ascended into heaven from where he will one day return and reward the under shepherds who have been faithful to him. Now it has been pointed out that Psalm 22, 23, and 24 are a progression that lead the reader from one key element of Christ to the next. Psalm 22 is the song of the dying shepherd crying out to the Father from the cross. 
Psalm 23 is the song of the risen shepherd guiding the sheep through life's dark wilderness. And Psalm 24 is the song of the ascended shepherd who will reward those who have faithfully served him. Now, some may think that the progression is stretching it a little bit, but there can be no mistake that Psalm 22 is the psalm of the cross. The best description in all the Bible of Jesus Christ's crucifixion. And if ever there was insight into the heart of Jesus as he hung on that cross and what was going on in his humanity, this is the psalm. Because there are very key elements here that all of us will be able to identify with. Most modern writers on the Psalms try to find a, a setting for them, either in the life of David, uh, if they believe David wrote it, or in some other individual. In other words, they're written of the experience of contemporaries. But Psalm 22 isn't that kind of psalm. For one thing, the psalm is about an execution, and particularly a crucifixion. And at that time, crucifixion wasn't practiced. In fact, it wasn't practiced for several centuries uh, on. But this is a clear prophetic psalm that tells you and I what is going to happen on the cross over 300 years before it actually happens. So in, a, in a addition to this, the Gospels that we have, we have a prophecy here detailing more of his experiences during those hours from the nailing on the cross until his death. These were written, as I said, 15 to 300 centuries before, and yet the accuracy is amazing. Derek Kidner writes, No incident recorded of David can begin to account for this. The language of the psalm defies a naturalistic explanation. So, is it possible that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, that he was meditating on Psalm 22? Is it possible that these prophetic psalms were running through his mind and his heart as he hung there? Let, let's look for a few minutes at Jesus meditating on Psalm 22 from the cross. What were the main events leading up to this? Well, first, Jesus had been arrested the previous night. He had been kept under guard in the house of the high priest to be tried the next morning by the Sanhedrin. He was immediately that morning rushed to judgment and then sent to Pilate's Jerusalem residence for sentencing because under Roman rule, they had no authority to do so. Then Jesus was led through the streets of the city to Golgotha, bearing his own cross where he was to be crucified. Now in this particular time, what was going through the mind of Jesus? I think you'll realize at this point that what was going through his mind was others. When Jesus saw the woman weeping after him, he said in Luke 23, verse 28, but turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. And then he prophesies about the coming doom that was on the horizon. When the soldiers hammered the nails into his feet, into the palms of his hands, he said in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He had words for the dying thief, Luke 23, 43, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
And then what of his mother? John 19, 26 through 27, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. In none of these incidents was Jesus ever thinking of himself. He was thinking entirely of others. Just let that sink in for a minute. He's already been whipped within an inch of his life. Crowns thrust on his head. He's dragging that heavy cross. He's being nailed to the tree. And all he's doing is caring for women who are crying. All he's doing is caring for those that are actually nailing him to the cross. All he's doing is caring about his old mother and that she's cared for. This is a miraculous thing that Jesus had in his mind. And when you think about this, Jesus, whom everything is about, makes you and I what he is about at that moment. But at noon, that all changed. At noon, a great darkness came over the land, which lasted till three in the afternoon. Many see the darkness as a veil that covered Jesus almost in a private moment between him and the Father. These were private hours. It's as if God shut the gates of heaven on Jesus so that what transpired during these hours happened between himself and Jesus alone. Now, What was Jesus thinking about during these hours? There's no reason why we should have to know this. God could have kept silent about it, but there's very critical things that will absolutely shake your life and mine when we understand them, both in Psalm 22 and also in the New Testament. Three things from the New Testament. Number one, Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, verse 46, and also Mark 15, 34. It was a direct, explicit, and completely appropriate quote from Psalm 22, verse 1. Second, Jesus exclaimed, I'm thirsty. The soldiers then offered him wine vinegar on a sponge, John 19, 28. The only Old Testament passage he could have been thinking about was Psalm 69, 21. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. This gives you the idea that Jesus was thinking about these Old Testament texts, because John says it was so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Then number three, he cried out, it is finished. At the end of the period of darkness, just before he died, Jesus called out, it's finished, John 19.30. And this is a direct quote from the last verse of Psalm 22, verse 31. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Now this refers to God as the subject. And since there is no verb in Hebrew, it can easily be translated, it is finished or it is done. 
Psalm 22 begins with a description of Christ's alienation from the Father as he was made sin for us. It continues with a vivid description of the crucifixion itself and then ends in triumph as the suffering one tells how his prayers are heard and affirms what God is doing in and through his life. Since Jesus ended his earthly life by quoting the last verse of Psalm, it means he died in triumph knowing full well that his atonement was perfectly accepted by God and that all who trust in his death, burial, and resurrection will have eternal life. So let's go to the suffering Savior. And let's see how this directly affects you and I. The suffering Savior. Number one, the cry of the forsaken. Look at verse one and two again. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, and I find no rest. These verses are devastating and disturbing. Here the suffering one cries out to God, believing that he's been forsaken by him. Asking why and asserting that God is silent. He receives no answer. Why did Jesus even ask the question? He knows why he's there. It's the reason he came from heaven, isn't it? He took on the form of man, lived a life, showed us how to live, how to get through suffering, how to handle trials and troubles, to make an atonement, to heal people, to heal the lying, the blame, and now he's going to the cross. Why is he asking why? I'll tell you why. It's showing his suffering in his humanity. You and I don't suffer for anyone. But have you ever cried out, why, 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 God? And God is silent. His suffering in his humility is just like you and me. His pain is just like you and me. His rejection is just like you and me. Now, I'm not putting our suffering on par with what he did to save us. His suffering accomplished a far greater purpose. But your suffering and mine is accomplishing a greater purpose when we allow God to live through it. All this aside... Jesus was indeed forsaken by God while he bore the sins of, his pe of the people on the cross. This is the very essence of the atonement. Jesus bearing our hell in order that we might share his heaven. How could this happen? How could a member of the eternal trinity turn his back on another? I don't know. 
can't begin to explain it. But the Bible teaches it. So great was his love for you and I. And so great was the price Jesus was willing to pay for you and me. Have you ever considered what the Father had to pay? We know what Jesus paid. It's well documented. The suffering, the horrific suffering that he had to go through. But did you ever consider what the Father went through? Imagine having to turn your back on the one you love. Imagine God the Father turning his back on God the Son. Excruciating. Because he loves you and me. Are you kidding me? God loves me that much that he'd be willing to do that. Number two, past experiences. He brings up past experiences. Verses three or five. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Now there are two ways to look at this. Since it calls attention to how God delivered others in the past, in this case the fathers in the past, it could be viewed as bitter irony. You deliver them? What about me? They cried. They weren't ashamed. They called out to you. You delivered them. Hey, how about me? But I think the better way to look at this is to see it as a grasping for encouragement by recollecting what God did in the past. Remember, during this period of time, God the Father is silent. Jesus is being made an atonement for sin. All the sins of the world are heaped on him. God has turned his back on him. So he can't get a direct answer. So he looks to the past. Okay. The fathers cried out and you heard them. They trusted in you and they weren't brought to shame. Okay. If you did it for them, you'll do it for me. And that is such a beautiful experience of how you and I should react in the time of trouble. God has never, ever, ever forsaken his own children. And he will never forsake you. Even though the hour is dark, even though you can't see, never stop trusting him. And it's a clear lesson. Look, there is a brilliant way that the Holy Spirit-led psalmist is opening up this description of what Jesus is going through for you and me. Put yourself here. God, I've read how you've always been faithful to those in the past. I read how you were with me and promised to meet my needs and never leave me. But where are you? 
Can't you see what I'm going through? Can't you see my pain? Why are you silent? Where are those promises I read about? You can't possibly love me like you say, I'm out of here. And that's how you get the de-churched. All they see is the suffering and the pain. They won't put up with it. They don't hear God. They're out of here. And they miss what God is doing. God is not silent because you're suffering for the sins of the world. But his silence is working a far more eternal and weight of glory. And so you and I have a transparent Savior who is suffering so you and I can see what he's going through and know I've been there too. Not for the sins of the world, of course. But in my own little world, I suffer and hurt. And I face rejection. And I face loneliness. And I face loss of income. And I face loss of all these things. Jesus openly suffers for you and I to see what this means. Number three, a mockery of God's purpose. Look at verse six through eight. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by the mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, he who delights in him. Do you see the amazing association with the New Testament account here as confirmation of what he's going through? He begins to move now from the earlier sense of having been abandoned by God to the scorn of the people who mock him in this basis. Verse 8, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Not only is Jesus going through this, but he's being ridiculed to no end. Matthew 27, verse 39 through 43. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. Have you ever been ridiculed for trusting God? Imagine hanging on the cross dying for the sins of the world, and they just mocking him at no end. And not only that, it's pitch black right now. Oh, and by the way, in the middle of the day, I, I think I'd be a little nervous. But it shows you the hardness of men's hearts. They will mock, and they will mock, and they will ridicule at no end. But Jesus hung there, and he took it. For you and me. Are you starting to get a sense of the openness of Jesus here and his unimaginable love for you and I? You see, we get so clouded with this world. 
we get so enwrapped with our problems. And in our humanness, we can't see the way out. So we're constantly taking matters into our own hands. Jesus hung on the cross, trusting the Father. And you and I are to trust the Father in everything we go through. But number four, the heart remembers. Verses 9 through 11. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Here the sufferer moves forward a notch in his thinking. Since the memory is now not of what he had done for the fathers in the past, but now he recollects what he has done for me. Verse 10, from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Let me tell you something. If you're here as a child of God and you have trusted Christ as your Savior, we mentioned this last week, but I'll say it again. You were chosen before the foundation of the world. You are hid in Christ. And he utters, hey, from my mother's womb, you are my God. From my mother's womb. And friends, when you trust Christ, he has been your God. He will always be your God. He will never let you go. And you can trust him completely. And that's such a strong message from the cross here. He always was your God. Now remember, God has turned his back on him. So he is rehearsing what he knows, just as you and I should. The scripture says that he was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. After he left his baptism with John the Baptist, he went into the wilderness. And you know how he was tested in all ways. And even through the course of his life, he was tested repeatedly, but without sin. Here's the great temptation here and now that Jesus is being assaulted with. It is the temptation to doubt. The temptation to doubt. It is the single greatest temptation you will ever, ever, ever face. It's greater than sexual temptation. It's greater than financial temptation. It's greater than controlling your mind and its thoughts. Doubt is the greatest temptation there is. If Jesus doubts, he could take matters into his own hands and hop right off the cross. He could do that. But then what would happen to us? We don't doubt when things are hunky-dory. But when they're bad, we not only doubt if God will help, but if doubt unchecked, you will begin to doubt he even exists. And that is why it's the number one tool Satan uses. If you're a child of God, you can never lose that salvation. 
You're not good enough to save yourself. You're certainly not good enough to keep yourself saved. So you're sealed until the day of redemption, Ephesians tells us. So the only thing left to do is to make you doubt to destroy your testimony. And before you know it, things of this world become more important. Things of God take a back seat. And in that weakened state, when doubt throws at you, you're an easy target. Jesus was slam-bammed with temptation to doubt. But he rehearsed who he was. He rehearsed who God was. He rehearsed that God had been his God forever, and in that he trusted. And if ever there is a beautiful picture of what you and I can do to hang on in times of difficulty, it is right here in, the, in verses 9 through 11. God, you loved me so much. That you went to the cross. You sent your son. In fact, before the foundation of the world, you planned this out. Because you loved me so much down the road that you took care of it in eternity past. And when Christ came and paid the price, I'm sealed when I come to you at Christ. I'm yours forever. So when the trials of this life come, why would I doubt? I read all through the scriptures of everything you've done to everyone who trusted you. I've read the testimonies of others who have trusted you in the midst of storms and what you've done. Why don't I trust you in my own life? And there is no answer except you refuse to give yourself totally to Christ. The reality, as we've mentioned many times before, is not only are you saved, but he gives you the Holy Spirit to dwell within you. Why? Because he knows you're not capable in the flesh. And however long, many years you're in this world, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, more, whatever it is, you're a sitting duck. And he knows it. So he gives you the Holy Spirit. And he wants you to rest in him, to be in the word of God and allow the Spirit to take the word to encourage you every step of the way. And when you read passages like Psalm 22, verses 9 through 10, when he talks about the womb and all these things, he knows the word of God. When you are hit with a trial, how often does your mind go straight to the word of God and cling to it? Because that is what's required of us. And why do we say what we always do? He must increase. I must decrease. And when that happens, he guides you through every single trap you face in life. Number five, the suffering, physical suffering, verses 12 through 18. Now here, the crucifixion seems to be remarkably portrayed. If you have a Schofield reference Bible, you might find the following. Psalm 22 is a graphic picture of death by crucifixion. The bones of the hands, the arms, the shoulders, and the pelvis are out of joint, verse 14. The profuse perspiration caused by intense suffering, verse 14. The action of the heart affected, verse 14. Strength exhausted in extreme thirst, verse 15. The hands and the fierce pierced, verse 16. The partial nudity with a hurt to modesty, verse 17. 
are all associated with that mode of death. And so any accompanying circumstances are precisely those fulfilled in the crucifixion. And so the New Testament comes in, the desolate cry of what we saw in Psalm 22, verse 1, found in Matthew 27, 46. The periods of light and darkness of verse 2, found in Matthew 27, 45. The contemptuous and humiliating treatment of verses 6 through 8 and 12 through 13, found in Matthew 27, 39 through 44. The casting of lots in verse 18, found in Matthew 27, 35, were all literally fulfilled. And when it's remembered that the crucifixion was Roman and not a Jewish form of execution, the proof of inspiration is irresistible. So you can take what God's example, Jesus Christ's example on the cross, you can take it to heart. It is true. And what he is doing in and through your life is also true. It's a reality that can only come through Jesus Christ. But now we come to the turning point, verse 6. The turning point, verses 19 through 21. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horn of the wild oxen. The suffering Savior finds his communion with God restored. The change goes from despair to renewed trust. It literally means you have heard me. In other words, God hears not only Jesus, but he hears our cry as well. God the Father hears the cry of his son who's dying for you. Trust me, he's going to hear your cry. the purpose of the atonement. This is now a cry of triumph and not despair. It marks the moment at which the period of darkness had passed and Jesus, having suffered true alienation from the Father as punishment for our sins, becomes aware of God's presence and favor once again. And when he dies, he dies in perfect triumph. Listen to me. There is nothing, nothing on this earth that you'll be called to go through that God won't see you through. Nothing. It may seem impossible. It may seem devastating. There may be things happening completely out of your control, but God is working a far greater eternal weight of glory in and through you because he loves you. That's why he came to die for you. So the final point, he died for me. Write your name there. Just write your name in place of me. He died for me. At this point, the psalm takes on an entirely different tone, one so abrupt 
hearts are changed and the reality of the victory is confirmed. But I can't go on without asking the question. This atonement that's been described, this death, was it for you? Is it yours? Have you seized him as your savior? And if you have, are you living as one who's been seized by the Savior? John Wesley, perhaps his greatest hymn, he writes, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain for me who him to death pursued? Tis mercy all immense and free for, oh my God, he found out me. Are you in Christ? Have you accepted his death on the cross as payment for your sinful life? And if you have, is he your everything? Let's pray. Father, the words of this psalm are so heavy and so deep, but they're so illuminating to help us realize so clearly that it was for me that you died. Yet I go through life struggling and bouncing off this and bouncing off that and wondering where you are and then kind of just sliding to the back figuring that I'll just do the best I can. No, no, no. You want a life fit for the child of the king. And I pray that everyone here this morning would make that choice that now, this day forward, you are my everything. And if there's anyone here this morning who's never trusted you as Savior, God, I pray today that they would not leave without speaking to one of us and finding out how they can be assured totally of an eternity with you. Thank you, Lord, for your amazing grace and your amazing Son and your amazing Spirit who have worked this out for our glory, to bring glory to you, to honor you and show forth the world that you are amazing. And we'll give you the praise in Christ's precious name. And all God's people said, amen. God bless.